Um, it's alright, it'll be a few minutes because lots of mums and dads will still be coming back. Um, till it's cold, I, we're getting our, well, I've got my winter plumage on today. I always wear ties in the winter. I like ties, I'm really into ties, as you probably realise. But it's this winter, it's a bit more like spring plumage really, isn't it? But it's cold, so it keeps my little neck warm. I notice Steve's got a different sort of plumage. It's more appropriate really, like fluffy feathers, isn't it? Grey <laughs> grey feathers. That's much wiser, really. Mine's... He's, he, don't dare, we won't push it too far, Marion. <laughs> what he looks like, but it's feathers. Isn't it? But... Uh, <laughs> no, it's great. Well done. Uh, it's good to be with you. It's good to be sharing the Word of God this morning with you. Um, before I get into the actual subject, which is dynamically charismatic, I just want to encourage you with something that uh, certainly encourages me, but I want to encourage your faith as people are coming back. Um, Sometimes when we hear about healings, we hear about miraculous healings, amazing things God does, it can seem a thousand miles away, literally, physically a thousand, you know, in other countries, and we think, oh, does thing, do things happen here? But I, this is a, a very recent testimony, it's within the last three or four weeks, and it's from East Grinstead, which is a very ordinary place, I mean, not rude, not being rude, I know East Grinstead, I actually know the leaders there very well, I know they're younger men, they're men of uh, probably the... 30s, 40s generation, that Steve Alliston is one of the elders at, uh, at, at, at East Grinstead. And on Terry's blog, um, there's, this is, I'm going to read it from Terry Virgo's blog, but actually I met Steve Alliston a week or 10 days ago at a, a meeting and he confirmed this, um, this wonderful, in a, fe- in a sense, ordinary, extraordinary healing that God uh, performed uh, at their church just a few weeks ago. Terry, I'll, I'll read it from here. Terry, um, be expectant yourselves, right? That's the point. Terry talks about going to Brighton together on a mission uh, in July, then said he did a Bible week in Italy, and Steve, oops, Steve Allison went with him to Italy. And they saw some healings there, which was very encouraging at that conference. Then it reads on. On his return to East Grinstead, Steve Alliston who had been with me, reported to his local church about the healings that had taken place when they were in Italy. At the conclusion of the meeting, one man was prayed for, right? Conclusion of the meeting, one man was prayed for. We're going to pray for people at the end of this meeting. At the conclusion of the meeting, one man was prayed for who was due in hospital later that day for an operation on the Monday morning to remove his stomach and take out large growths. He had been in pain for years and was so inflamed that he had to wear dungarees as he couldn't cope with any form of waistband or normal trousers. He obviously must have felt God touching him. I know that from Steve, but this just goes on. On the following day, new CT scans were taken and the hospital couldn't understand why the results were so different from the ones taken the month previously. There were no traces of the growths and all inflammation had gone. They had expected surgery to last for many hours and told him to expect ten days in hospital. Instead, they gave him a meal and sent him home that afternoon. (laughs) Now, God is a healer, right? The Spirit of God is moving in our day. Terry actually goes on to say, I will read the next little bit, the tide is turning. These accounts of healing, Terry's writing, vividly remind me of the beginnings of the charismatic movement. 
I remember hearing of increasing numbers of individuals from different parts of the UK who were receiving the Holy Spirit and speaking with tongues. Something fresh was happening on an increasingly wide scale. Soon the charismatic movement would be sweeping the nations. Now I hear repeated stories of healings and powerful manifestations of the presence of God's Spirit in the meetings and on the streets. Healing seems so much more accessible. What will local churches look like in two or three years' time? It's good, isn't it? That's exciting. And I think we can be expectant today. We're going to pray at the end. We're going to pray for people here who are sick. We're going to pray for being filled with the Spirit. We're going to pray for several things probably in the end. But be expectant. It doesn't end only in the prayer, in the worship too. When we were in Bethel, they had many accounts of people healed in worship. And I just think the presence of God is there, is here, sorry, when we're gathering to touch and to heal. And uh, I I can assure you, if it can happen in East Grinstead, it can happen in Winchester. It's not about geography, of course. Praise the Lord. Lord, I just pray for your help this morning. I pray, Lord, for your blessing as we look at your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me to all of us and you would do the work you want to do amongst us this morning for your glory and for the extension of your kingdom and the building of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about being dynamically charismatic. It's in our a Church Worth Talking About series. And there's three little references will go up on the screen. I want to read three short readings from Acts, which are all to do with the church at Antioch, which is the one we're basing what we're saying on. Uh, they're little sort of tasters, really. Uh, uh, just little things that give us an insight into what sort of thing was happening at Antioch. Just notice, just look at it and notice what it is. It won't take you a great exercise of mind to realise what I want to draw from some of them, but do notice it. Don't let it just go in one ear and out the other. So I'm going to actually read one that's not on that list as well. If you looked in Acts 11, uh, you'll find in verse 21 the first sort of wave of activity that goes on in Antioch when the church is started really. It says the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. We'll come back to that verse later. Then look at verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Let's move on to chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, some very wealthy background, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And the very next sentence, The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus. And let's look at chapter 15 and verses 30 to 32. These are little snapshots of Antioch. These are after the the big dispute uh, about could the Gentiles be in the kingdom like Jews and it's resolved in in the Council of Jerusalem and that the findings are brought to Antioch. Verse 30 of Acts 15. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. 
The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. You will see that the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy particularly in the ones we've read, and a sense of God's imminent presence amongst them and all that God was doing, these were important aspects of the church at Antioch. And this is totally in harmony with the whole theme of Acts. Go on your screen. Acts 1.8 is Luke presenting the theme of the whole book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 8 says this, Jesus speaking to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the theme of Acts. It's actually the theme of the church and the church age. The power of the Holy Spirit and the mission to the world. That is it. That is the theme. The power of the Holy Spirit and the mission to the world. That's what Acts is about. And Antioch is a church that demonstrates it completely. Antioch is right in the centre of the model that God wants to see us to see of church as it should be. They're a church soaked in grace, we saw last week, and many other things, but they're a church full of the dynamism of the Holy Spirit and outward-looking and mission-orientated, sending out uh, Paul and Barnabas in the, in the few verses we read. In fact, Antioch becomes the beating heart of Acts, really. It, it seems the baton moves somewhat on from Jerusalem, who may have got a bit stuck in their ways and a bit locked up around the whole issue of the Jew-Gentile thing. We don't know the full details, but Antioch, to some extent, catches up the theme of what Jesus said to do. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and you're going to go out in mission to the world. Now I'm going to touch a startling truth over the next few minutes. I want you to listen carefully to get it, I hope, properly in your spirit. The startling truth of the gospel and of the age of the spirit is this. That human beings who have been redeemed by the work of Jesus on the cross redeemed by the blood of Jesus who died for us and rose again, have access to the same power, the sort of power, the Holy Spirit's power, that Jesus had access to. And that actually Jesus wanted to replicate himself. Not that we're all going to be of his calibre, nor any of us claiming to be. But actually there is something similar about the new creation to Jesus himself, men and women anointed with the Holy Spirit doing the works of God in a way that in a previous age, before the new covenant, would have been unthinkable. One of the aspects of the new covenant is that. It's what Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. This is the last days and the Holy Spirit's poured on all flesh and you'll find women prophesying and Gentiles and servant girls and young men visions and old men dreams and and there's going to be, and as Jesus said, there's going to be healings. You're going to lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You speak in other tongues, there'll be some miraculous deliverances. Jesus said something very extraordinary is going to happen. And he said it rather explicitly. Look at John 14, 12, which will go on your screen. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Just let that sink in. Anyone 
who has faith in me, follower of him, will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That is mind-blowing, but that's what he said. Let's stick with what he did do for a moment, which he said explicitly, explicitly. They will do what I have been doing. And in Acts chapters 1 and 2, the reality of this promise begins to come to, to pass as the Holy Spirit comes on what we call the early church, the birth of the church. Now, can we really expect to do what Jesus did? Can we really, do you really expect to do what Jesus did? Well, I believe the challenge of the Bible is yes. I've read in preparing for this a number of books, but one I've found really good is a book called Straight to the Heart of Acts by Phil Moore. And Phil Moore is a young leader. He's now leading the Wimbledon Church of New Frontiers. He used to be one of the elders at the Coin. Um, he's, a, he's a very able guy. He reads the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, so he gets. I mean, he's very, very. He's got brain like a planet. But he's a great guy. And he, I, I recommend his series. I mean, Matt Hosier said, this is 60 bite-sized insights. It goes right through Acts with 60 short chapters. And Matt Hosier says he reads it with his kids as their personal family devotion. Because it's just so good and so accessible. Anybody can read this and enjoy it. It's straight to the heart of Acts, 60, 60 bite-sized insights by Phil Moore. Very good. Now, I'm drawing some of my points from him, so I've given him the credit. And now I won't tell you every time, so you'll have to guess for yourself. It's not all him, some of it's me, some of it's one or two other people. But it all gets woven together for you today. Right. Phil says, Luke places a surprising amount of emphasis on Jesus' humanity and Jesus' dependence on the Holy Spirit. Hear that? Luke places a surprising amount of emphasis on Jesus' humanity and his dependence on the Holy Spirit. Here are two examples. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Here's another one, famous one, Acts 10.38, a remarkable verse. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Watch the words carefully. Anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now, actually, we'll leave that up for a moment, thank you, Acts 10.38. That is a particularly interesting verse. I think it's quite theologically fascinating, actually. It indicates that Jesus did what he did as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was not merely acting out of his divinity. Jesus was God become man. He was totally and completely both at the same time. The God-man. But we do need to think quite carefully about this verse. God is the source of all power. God in his inherent godness and person in no way needs to be anointed. God does not be a need to be anointed. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to do anything. That's how it is with God. 
But it's clear when we're being taught about how Jesus moved, he moved as it were as a man. He was in man mode, if I can put it that way. And Jesus is it's explained to us that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power and he wasn't just moving out of his divinity. Of course God can create miracles and can destroy cancers or change lepers. But there was a sense in which Jesus was a man anointed by the Holy Spirit and therefore empowered to bring the kingdom into people's lives and to see people healed and to see demons cast out and to see miracles of provision. So Acts 10.38 seems to be emphasising how Jesus the man operated through the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Now that's very important because it's doing something for us to learn from. And it's introducing us to a new sort of humanity. Men and women saved, redeemed, filled with the Spirit and anointed to bring the kingdom and the kingdom's power in the power of the Holy Spirit to those around them. Jesus promised the same Holy Spirit, as we've seen already, but we could have taken a number of other verses. He promised that we would see similar miracles because, as he said, I am going to the Father. When I've been exalted to the right hand of the Father, pour out the Spirit and you will see the same things. Through his death and resurrection, he had made this possible and actually the completing of that is when he is raised up to the right hand of the Father and that's when he's able to pour out the Holy Spirit. Let's look again at another verse. Um, uh, Now, I've gone ahead of myself. Is it 2.39? No, wait, hold that one for a moment. Yeah, he wants to pour out the Holy Spirit because he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. And this is not going to be for just a few people. The sense is it's for all who are called in this age of the Spirit. Now we can look at Acts 2.39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, the promise is the promise of the Spirit. That's what it's being referred to. Of course, it comes with the whole deal, if I can put it that way, of your sins forgiven and new life, but the completion of it is the anointing of the Spirit. And that promise is for all whom the Lord our God will call. Those who are near, which might be thought of as the people listening to him and the Jews at that moment in Jerusalem, but those who are far off, the Gentiles and us, Gentiles and far off in time. This promise is for all who are called in this age and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. So in the book of Acts that we're looking at, and we're not looking at it all, we've looked at it before, but in the book of Acts, there are frequent references to signs and wonders and healings being done. Manifestations of the power of God on his disciples. Another question that's often raised, even when people read it in the book of Acts, is, Isn't this just what was for the apostles? Isn't this just for the twelve who were with Jesus, the special group of people? Well, there's no doubt those twelve are special. They are the foundation stones of the church. They're the twelve foundation stones seen metaphorically as that of the new Jerusalem in, in Revelation. They are special. They were with Jesus. They saw everything. They saw him die, saw him rise again. And indeed, the qualifications to be one of the twelve were quite specific which is why in Acts 1 they, they only down to two, two people to cast lots for a replacement for Judas. Someone had seen Jesus, heard his teaching, seen him die, seen him res- resurrect his resurrected um, person. But actually, even in the Gospels, this anointing to bring the power of the Spirit is beyond the twelve. 
People are healed, they're, they're, they're delivered of demons by 70, 72 are sent out. So even in the Gospels, Jesus is expanding the circle. Not only the 12, but the 70 go out and in the power of God's Spirit see healings and deliverances and wonders and signs. Then in Mark 16, verse 18, Jesus says that this will be for all who believe in me and follow me. This will be something that will be a characteristic of my followers, that they will lay hands on the sick and see them recover. They will cast out demons in my name, etc. talks about speaking in tongues there, miracles of provision. And that does already suggest a widening circle. But when you look at Acts carefully, it is by no means only the 12 who are doing this. That is never how it is. Just look carefully. We won't look at any of these today, but you can look if you want to yourself. Acts 6 verse 8, we have Stephen, who is not an apostle, described as being a man full of God's grace and power, who did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Stephen. Then in Acts 8 verses 6 and 7, we have Philip, again, not an apostle, described as gathering crowds who see the miraculous signs and deliverances and healings that Philip performed under the power of the Holy Spirit. Philip did. Then in Acts 9, verses 17 and 18, and we can miss this one sometimes, we have a very ordinary person, Ananias, who we never meet again, who is just described as a disciple, who God calls to go and visit the Apostle Paul. And when he visits him, you just read it as, by the way, he lays hands on Paul and Paul is miraculously healed. His blindness goes when Ananias lays hands on him and he is, in the words there, filled with the Spirit. So Ananias is the agent that brings the Spirit to Paul. He's filled with the Spirit. His eyes are opened. And then the verse we read in Acts 11:21. again, we can, if you're not careful, miss something. Acts 11:21 talks about unnamed disciples. We don't even know who these were. People, some of them, verse 20, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch, began to speak to Greeks telling them the good news about Jesus. Remember the theme is, power of the Spirit, witness to Jesus, going together. These people are witnessing to Jesus, and it says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Well, Now, obviously, the logic of that is undoubtedly partly that amazing numbers were saved because the power of the Spirit was working with them. But actually, that phrase, this is a Phil Moore point, the hand of the Lord is only usually used when it's referring to miracles and signs. And so we won't turn to it, but if you were to look at Acts 4.30 or Acts 13.11, you would see the hand of the Lord being linked to signs and wonders and miracles. And it is not at all fanciful to suggest that implies this bunch of people, as they preached the gospel, were seeing signs and wonders. That God's hand was evident. People were being delivered from demons. People were being healed. And it caused a, a, a... fast accelerated growth of the church at Antioch. It was clearly the same sort of stuff going on. God was making it look authentic, because it was authentic. He was endorsing it. Same sort of thing he does with Cornelius. Why did Cornelius and his followers speak in tongues and start prophesying almost instantly? They're saved. Because that makes Peter and the others say, this is the real deal. This is authentic. This is the spirit of God's power here. We can see the, the same sort of things happening. It looks as though that's what was happening at Antioch. So the message from Acts is clear. 
the crucial force for spreading the kingdom of God is the power of the Holy Spirit linked to mission, linked to witnessing to Jesus. In the words of Peter Wagner, to us, all of us, we need to receive the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our ministries to the greatest extent possible in order to serve God well in our world. That's a very simple statement. Let me just say it again and let it be your Amen. Okay? We need to receive the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our ministries to the greatest extent possible in order to serve God well in our world. Amen? We need it. God, we need everything you've got in your locker. Give it to us. Don't let's be picky and weird about it. Now, Antioch and the book of Acts, perhaps, but Antioch in particular, reminds us that being filled with the Spirit is central to Christian life and is absolutely crucial to the call on the church and to empower the church. And actually in our day and in the generations we have moved out of, because we are moving on these days, but these things are still a problem, what I'm about to talk about, because they still linger around. And they're actually a bit of a problem, partly because of the culture of the UK and our very quiet, understated nature, frankly zipped up and buttoned up people we are. But let's just clearly say this. The Holy Spirit is meant to make a visible difference to the saints. Okay? It's meant to be obvious. Stuff is meant to happen that makes it obvious. Satan hates spirit-filled Christians. He is scared stiff of people who know the word and are filled with the spirit. They are his nightmare. The worst combination for Satan. So he will undermine the word and the spirit, ideally, to have you completely useless. But he will undermine the word sometimes, but pump up the spirit in terms of experiences and get you unbalanced. Or he'll undermine uh, the spirit and pump up the word to get you unbalanced. We want both. Full on, full of the spirit. Full on, full of the word. Now, we need to address this spirit issue. And I'm going to do so for a few minutes. Because part of Satan's tactics are this. Satan will try and get Christians to think being filled with the Spirit is something that is invisible and non, it doesn't, it's a non-issue. It, he will want you to have a zero expectation of what it means in your life. I'm filled with the Spirit. How do you know? Well, I don't know. A little experience 20 years ago. Occasional little... feel occasionally a little bit happy. Right? He will want you to downgrade it to virtually zero. That it's almost invisible. It's like getting a badge, a cub. Yeah, I've got my filled with the spirit badge. That's it now. I can say I'm okay. I can join the church, whatever. Qualification. That would be one tactic. Another tactic, which is a little similar, will be to say it is optional. That being filled with the spirit is peripheral or optional. It is not something added on. It is not optional. It's part of the whole deal of being a Christian. Being filled with the Spirit is part of what it is. In actual fact, it's a central part of why Jesus came to earth. 
Look at Matthew 3, verse 11. Of course he came to die for our sins. You know I believe that. But look at Matthew 3, verse 11. John the the Baptist. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's part of Jesus' mission to baptise us in the Holy Spirit, to fill us with his fire. Of course we need our sins forgiven. Of course he came to die for them. But he did that so that he could rise in the power of an endless life, be exalted to the Father and pour out the Holy Spirit. I go to the Father so that you can do what I was doing. That's what he said. That's my valid, accurate summary of two or three of his statements that we touched earlier. And so there is a direct link with the risen, glorious Lord and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Here we have Acts 2.33. So I have got it in there in a different place than what I thought. Acts 2.33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is not invisible. This is not peripheral. This is not optional. This is part of the whole thing. Amen? Amen. And don't let Satan do this. And for this, I am using Phil's. I thought it was a very helpful insight. Don't let Satan trick you into putting too much emphasis on the moment you were first filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that can be a negative or a positive emphasis. It can be a positive emphasis in which you talk about that moment. I was first filled with the Holy Spirit. I would call it baptising the Spirit in 1971, in October, nearly, uh, nearly there at the anniversary. I could, Marion will say I have, I could go on about this for years. She's heard it a thousand times. I could go on about this for years. What happened to me? How long ago is that now? 39 years. 39 years ago, my blessed experience when I was in my room at university. Oh, I spoke in tongues. What's the point? 39 years ago, what was that today? Am I filled with the Spirit today? So there can even be a positive thing like, I've had my filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit experience. I've got it. I've got my badge. No, no. That's the positive and that's not good. Then there's the negative. But I haven't got an experience like John. I, I can't actually say a day when I know one minute I was, next minute I wasn't, and then I was filled with the Spirit. And it really troubles me. And there are people who've been 20 or 30 years still grieving over that, who still say, I, I can't actually say I'm baptised in the Spirit. I don't quite know yet. Get filled today. I nearly said stuff whether you get <laughs> I will say. Look. It's not about a historic thing back there. Was I or wasn't I? And Phil helpfully points out, Luke uses exactly the same verb to describe Peter's initial filling, his subsequent fillings, once and twice and three times. So Phil says, in Acts, we won't look at it, in Acts 2.4, in Acts 4.8, in Acts 4.31, exactly the same word is used for Peter being filled with the Spirit. The first time on the day of Pentecost and all the other times. He kept on being filled and it's describing it in exactly the same way. And the same happens for Paul. Acts 9.17, Acts 13.9. Don't look at it now if you want. If that interested, you can look later. But the point is, you have to probably read it in Greek anyway. The point is that it's the same words that they were filled and filled. Again, we should not focus on the question, am I full? 
We need to focus on the question. Sorry, we do. You got that wrong. Let's start again. We should focus on the question, am I full? Not the question, was I filled? I trust my mistake makes you get it more than you would have otherwise got it. Because I was looking forward to saying that properly. And I'm rather annoyed (laughs) that I haven't. So I trust that means it's even more got into you. Because that's the question I want you to focus on this morning. Not, was I filled? But am I full? And I want you all to be questioning that this morning. Not in a nasty way, in a positive way. Because we're going to pray for you to be filled with the Spirit at the end, when I shut up, in about 20 minutes. And we're going to say, maybe 15 if I can, am I full? That's the question that matters. Now, Antioch was a church fashioned and envisioned by spiritual gifts. That's obvious in what I've read. It's a church where people are full of the Spirit. There are prophetic words on the inside, which we saw in Acts 13, which guide them. There are prophetic words that come from the outside. We saw that in Acts 11 and Acts 15, where prophets came, Agabus and uh, Silas and others came and brought prophetic words and it encouraged the church. This church was open to the prophetic. I want our church to be open to the prophetic. It's a strong reminder, Antioch, that the prophetic gift is a vital way of receiving direction and vision for a church. And God has provided it for that purpose. That's challenging, isn't it? Because I'm going to challenge you to be filled with the Spirit. I'm going to challenge you to develop your giftings. We need more prophecy. And the context of Acts 13 is not like a big Sunday morning meeting. Acts, any of them. Acts 11, we don't quite know, but these prophets turned up and they they spoke into them, Agabus and others. Same happened in Acts 15 with Judas and Silas. And then in Acts 13, it seems that a leadership team, really, are worshipping and praying. And while they're worshipping and praying, they're obviously open to prophetic gifts. And a prophetic gift comes that this is the time for uh, a prophetic word for Paul and uh, Barnabas to be sent out, and they are sent out. So the church Antioch was on tiptoe with this Holy Spirit stuff. It was expecting God to move. It was expecting the imminence of God in all its meetings. That God is here. He's going to speak to us. Things are going to happen. People are going to get healed when we pray for them. The hand of the Lord's going to be with us when we're out there, or when we're in here, actually. And we're going to hear from God. That's the sort of church that's worth talking about. That's a church that will do stuff for God. And there they were, praying and worshipping together. God wants us to be zealous for spiritual gifts. Let's look at two verses you probably know very well. In Corinthians, later on, Paul is teaching the Corinthians, eagerly desire the greater gifts. He goes on to talk about love, we acknowledge that. But he says, eagerly desire, sorry, the greater gifts. And then he says, at the beginning of chapter 14, these words are up there, I hope, yeah. uh, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. He's quite keen not to leave them downplaying spiritual gifts after his extraordinary and wonderful teaching on love, which is very important. But he comes back to spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14 because he sees them as very important. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts. That means really want them. Apparently, it literally means an eager striving and enthusiasm. Do you have an eager striving and enthusiasm for spiritual gifts, particularly prophecy? I want you to have it. An eager, enthusiastic desire. I was, one of the things that challenged me over the summer, I was reading a little bit about Jacob and Esau. 
And I found God gave me a prophetic challenge. You know, Jacob was a cheat, a very flawed character when you read him. But one thing he got right, he valued God's promises and he valued the presence of God. Jacob valued God's promises and he valued the presence of God. Now Esau, who seems a nicer person on the surface, was complacent about spiritual matters and totally preoccupied with natural things and he basically despised those things of God. He despised the promises of God. They seemed too distant. His immediate needs were a decent meal, sort the day out. And that's what he did. That's what he went for. God loved Jacob's attitude and hated Esau's attitude. Hear that? God loved Jacob's attitude. Didn't love his character, but he loved his attitude. And actually, God, in the end, almost said to Jacob, it doesn't say it in words, if you've got an attitude like that, I can change you. We can do some business together. So God got hold of Jacob and ultimately he changed and became the Israel of God. But actually the character issues which were important were not the big showstopper that we saw. God said, I want people who've got a heart for me, who want my presence, who want my promises. And in a way, we can often slightly esteem the Esau approach, which is very practical, very pragmatic, it's down to earth. I need a decent meal, we need to get the day sorted out. People who are measured and perhaps don't particularly rate spiritual things. Getting sort of the Holy Spirit, spending an hour worshipping. Is that important? Is it important? Why don't we just get on with the practical of life? Be careful. I don't want to be an Esau. I want to be a Jacob. And don't sit there and think, well, I'm not good enough to be a Jacob. He is a mess. You read the story. But he's got a heart for God. And God loves that. I'm appealing to you this morning. God loves it. He says, I can sort the character out later. Once I've got him contact, once I've got him under my wing. But I will love people who are hungry for my promises. Say, God, I want your promises. I want your presence. That's what Jacob does. What stops us pressing through on this? We need to be a people who eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So I'm just going to quickly flag up. It will have to be very quick. Things, don't let these things stop you. Fear. Fear can stop you. You know, there's a lot of fear about, within our country probably, and with our sort of church sometimes, fear about the Holy Spirit. Although people accept it, there's a bit of fear. Will I get something that does me a lot of harm? People really think that. Will I ask for the Holy Spirit to fill me? Will God hurt me? Will I look stupid? Will I open the door to the demonic? I've heard people, I've, I, was, I had to work my way out of that 39 years ago because I was taught that sort of thing. Will I open myself up to the demonic? Will I get something I shouldn't? Let me give you a scripture. Jesus, let's, let's read it carefully. It should go up. Luke 11, 9 to 13. So I say to you, says Jesus, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Don't just put it in Jesus' time, put it today. I ask you, which of you here who is a parent, if your child asks for a fish, are going to give them an adder? Ha <laughs> ha, that's funny. Little Johnny asked for a fish, I gave him a live snake. It's grotesque, isn't it? You're not going to do that. 
Or if he asks for an egg, gives him a scorpion. Your little pretty little girl asks for an egg. You think, yeah, this will be funny. When she lifts the lid, there's a live scorpion under there. Who's going to do that? Who's going to do that? Then he goes on. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You're not going to get a scorpion. You're not going to get a snake. Now, those are actually demonic metaphors in many ways. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get something that just poisons you, frustrates you, hurts you, puzzles you and sort of leaves you hurt and confused. That is not what will happen with the Holy Spirit. Come to a good father and ask him. And Jesus gives that in a context of ask openly, almost imploring you. Ask, knock, ask. Well, you could say, well, why, if he wants to give it to me, he can do it. He told you to ask. That's all I can say. And then he says, ask in faith. I'll tell you another one that can keep us away from it. Pride. We'll be quick on this one. Sometimes pride can be disguised in various little phrases. We don't need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What we really need is the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, I heard that so many times. We don't need the gifts. We just need the fruit. Well, it sounds good, but actually... I don't think I can do what God wants me to do without his power. And I think it's proud to think I can. I need the power of God to preach to you. I need the power of God to pray for people in a few minutes to be filled with the Spirit. I need the power of God to pray for the sick. I don't think I can do this without him. And I think it's pride to think you can. Of course the fruit should be there. We should let no man, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. The fruit and the... The gifts go together. They're not an either-or. You don't choose one or the other. I'll have the fruit, you have the gifts. What nonsense. They go together. It's one Holy Spirit. What are you trying to do? Divide up the Trinity? What are you trying to do? Pull asunder what God's put together? No, we want both. And you will have both as you walk in the Spirit. Of course we want the fruit. But that doesn't mean we don't want the gifts. They're not an either-or. One's better than the other. I don't believe I can do this without the gifts. Another phrase similar is... Seek the giver, not the gifts. Again, it sounds good. Seek the giver, not the gifts. Fine. But if you reject the gifts God has for you, you also, in some ways, reject him. What happens when you bring a gift to someone? You love someone. I like I like Pete. He's a really nice guy. And I want to show him my love for him. So I bring him a gift I thought about, and I think it will bless him. And Peter says, well, John, I really love you. Oh, no, I don't want that, thank you. It looks a little bit of a waste of time to me. That's probably wasted your money on that, John. Never mind. But I do like you, John. I mean, I'm going to have very mixed feelings. How are we doing splitting up the giver and the gift? Don't reject the gifts. They come with the giver. Accept them both. He's given spiritual gifts actually as a manifestation of his presence amongst us. If we want him, we're going to get the gifts. Because that's one of the ways he manifests himself. Amen? Don't split them up. Don't try and do that. So don't let pride stop you. Don't let fear stop you. Don't let order. Well, what it is, is a concern for disorder. And this is quite a real one to many of us. And we can point quite justifiably in some ways to the Corinthians and say, well, look, they were chaotic. They were all sorts of things. And Paul had to correct them. Yeah, but did you notice what I already gave you from the Corinthians? Paul never said, don't go for the spiritual gifts, they're causing too much trouble. They never said that, did he? He said, 
get it right, basically. He wanted proper motivation, which is love, love for God and love for others. He wanted a godly order in the functioning, practically, but he never discouraged them from seeking gifts. In fact, he went the other way, he said, eagerly desire them. So there is no context here of saying, well, if we want order, then we won't be able to have the gifts. Any sort of abuse you've seen or heard about is no excuse for non-use of the gifts. I am not going to be kept from them because something... And look, we're not going to get everything right. Come on, wake up and smell the coffee. What is life like? What have you ever got right from day one? What have you ever got? Have you ever played tennis and got it right from day one? Have you had sex and got it right from day one? How, how, how practical would you want me to be? No, what do you ever get right from day one? Exactly right. You try and you learn and you adjust and that happens with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to have a mess, but this is life. Here's a great proverb. I love this. It's going to go up. It's Proverbs 14.4. It's actually from the ESV, which I like the way it puts it better. It's a bit clearer. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. That is a profound statement. Let it sink in. Don't miss it. It's the word of God. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. This is obvious, isn't it? If you want a harvest, you'll have to accept some mess. Won't you? If you want a clean manger... You'll have to have no oxen, then you'll have no mess, but you'll have no harvest either. Got it? You've got an oxen, it ain't going to clean the manger afterwards with a wipe and put Dettol on it for you. So that you come in, ooh, this is really smells nice, this uh, oxen. These are very, very thoughtful oxen. No, oxen don't do that. You want an oxen out there and you're going to have a harvest, you're going to have a bit of a smell in the manger sometimes. You're like, oh my goodness, that needs a clean out. Now, we don't look for trouble, but we're going to not always get it right. I want a harvest, don't you? Don't you want a harvest? Don't you want to move with what God's got for us? Come on, Lord, we need more of you. We're going to finish on this. I want a church worth talking about is one that's not afraid to run after God for everything he's got. It's one that's not afraid to say, we all need to be filled with your spirit. We want the hand of the Lord here, Lord. We want people healed. We want people saved. We want words and knowledge. We want prophetic words. We want people delivered from demons, which means we may have to have people with demons in them around us sometimes to get them delivered. And Lord, we want it all. We want a bit of a mess that we might have to harvest. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's come up, musicians, please. We want to be dynamically charismatic. It's not just a phrase. We're going to pause for a moment. Just give us an extra five minutes of something with the children. Ten minutes. We're doing quite well. We're going, to, we're going to just pause for a moment because I want to have response this morning and I want us to just worship for a minute while I let that sink into my own spirit and your spirit. and Just let God guide us how we respond. And we want to respond properly. I want to pray for those who are sick. I want us to pray for those who want to be filled with the Spirit. I trust that's a significant number of you, because you've heard what I said earlier. Uh, Am I full today? I mean, I want to be filled afresh today. I do myself. I pray for myself. I don't know how you quite do that. I I am going to pray. I'm I'm just getting silly. I, 
I just want more of God, don't you? Come on, Lord, let's worship for a moment, John.